Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast from the Financial Times. I'm Amy Keene. This week on the show, Alphaville's Izzy Kaminska talks to the crowdfunded economist Steve Keen. No relation there. The professor of economics is a self-described unorthodox economist, challenging the views of the neoclassical establishment in the field. You have to support the rebels, because in that sense, the rebels are the Copernicuses of our time. And unless we get a Copernican vision of economics rather than the Ptolemaic one, we'll continue bumping into meteors we don't even know are there. He joins Izzy to discuss these views and to talk about his latest book, entitled Can We Avoid Another Financial Crisis? Steve, I want to start off by having you introduce yourself to our listeners who may not know you properly. You mm-hmm. are obviously a big name. We see you all the time on the BBC. Or... Not as much on the BBC as I think I should be there, but nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> but also on RT, which is uh, yes, somewhat yes, controversial. Mm. But tell us a little bit how, about why you're different. Okay. Mainstream economics starts from the idea that you should model everything by knowing how individuals behave and then scaling that up to the uh, macroeconomic level. And they've taken it to the absolute um, end of that way of thinking now by what they call dynamic, stochastic, general equilibrium models, where they, they first started off by modeling the entire economy as one person, what they call the representative agent. And a very, very stylized way of modeling. I have been a critic of mainstream economics since 1971 and have read a lot more literature than, the, than most mainstream economists have about the foundations of mainstream economics, and I knew that was simply false. It simply couldn't work. So I wrote, uh, when I felt that there was a, uh, what I expected to be a, a, not a, a terminal financial crisis, but it certainly one was coming back in 1999 and 2000, I thought I'd write a accessible introduction to critiques of economics for people who haven't read the literature as much as I have called debunking economics. I think I came out pretty much a few days before the Nasdaq crash occurred, which because we sailed through because at the same time there was a subprime bubble going on, which we weren't actually quite so conscious of in 2000, but it was overwhelming by 2005, 2006. The way that I approach the economy is I model it from the point of view of macroeconomics. I'm a modeler, a mathematical modeler. And uh, in 1992, I developed a model which basically has three major variables to it, the employment rate, the wage share of GDP, and the private debt-to-GDP ratio. And when I, when I simulated that model, I got what appeared to be what you'd now call a great moderation, followed by a, a crisis, a great recession. So rather than seeing the period of the great moderation, which, which economists only started uh, describing the decline in volatility in employment and inflation in about 1998 as, uh, as the great moderation... So my little model uh, predicted the crisis and the preceding event of the Great Moderation. And then when 2005, 2006 came around, by sheer chance, I was dragged back into that mathematical modeling of the economy and empirical uh, analysis of the economy because I was asked to do an expert witness appearance for a, a case of predatory lending. 
and looking at the data, which I hadn't looked at for several years at this stage, uh, I'd made this throwaway line that private debt to GDP ratios have been rising exponentially. Checked the data, thought I'd have to modify the word exponential. My jaw fell off when I saw all the data. It fitted a pure exponential with a correlation coefficient of about nine nine eight. Was just stunning, and I thought, hell, this can't continue. When the rate of growth of private debt slows down, there'll be a crisis. Somebody has to warn about it, at least in Australia, on that somebody. So I started banging on journalists' uh, doors and writing blogs and so on from that point on. And uh, in that basis, I was regarded by another non-orthodox group called the Real World Economics Review as the economist who most cogently warned about the crisis and whose work could prevent another one. But 10 years later, we're still ignored by the mainstream. Do you feel like you've had a bit more access since 2008? Because I see you around, you know, you, you're now invited to the sort of, you know, Bank of England events mm. and, and stuff like that. Do you feel like maybe you're, you've managed to penetrate through that? Yeah, that yeah, I have. It's still the, the mainstream still dominates. Uh, but I have to say that one thing I really appreciate about uh, the UK culture is that there's a tendency in the history of the UK to entertain ideas that aren't necessarily agreed with. Whereas in America, even in Australia as well, there's a sort of bully attitude that if you're not with us, you're against us. And so I, within weeks of arriving here, I was invited to go to a, a launch of the One Bank project by the Bank of England. Now, that's, I, when I'd been in Australia at that stage for 20 years as an academic economist. I had never been invited to the Reserve Bank of Australia. And on one occasion, I offered to give a seminar and they declined my offer. So what I find is a much larger degree of openness in the UK. So it isn't just the fact that I've got you know good rapport with journalists and so on. The UK culture in general seems more interested in what might be called esoteric ideas. So in terms of explaining it to the layperson, because you do a really good job in the book, because I'm not an economist and I definitely um, got to grips with what you were saying. But maybe just explain very briefly, what is this phenomenon of the DSG model and why was it so prevalent in um, misguiding us in the crisis era? It's something that economists and mainstream economists have always been microeconomists fundamentally. Uh, there was no macroeconomics before the Great Depression. And uh, John Hicks developed the first neoclassical macroeconomic model called ISLM, uh, which was wrongly described as a Keynesian model, but it was actually a, a, a general equilibrium neoclassical model. And because it was described as a, as a, as a Keynesian model, the, it's, it's, I'm going to be rude, the rabid right of the American Economic Association wanted to get rid of it. And so their idea was, let's ch- chuck out this ISLM. Nobody's happy with ISLM. It was one quote-unquote from um, Robert Lucas. And so they tried to derive macro from micro. But what they did to do that, Robert Solo, a Nobel Prize-winning economist and quite a staunch supporter of the mainstream, simply said that the, the, the foundations of how they built DSG models were so bad, he'd simply laugh when anybody started explaining one to him. Because what they are based on is a model from the late 1920s by a, a mathematical economist prodigy in, in the UK called Ramsey. And Ramsey asked himself the question, is there an optimal savings rate for an economy? And to answer that question, he made a huge range of uh, extreme assumptions. Like, for example, he could represent the entire tastes of the economy with one utility function. You didn't have to worry about workers versus capitalists versus bankers, for example. We're all the same. We're all in this together. I think I've heard that quote here somewhere in the UK. And then they also had the idea of perfectly competitive firms, scaling up the perfectly competitive firms to the idea of a, of a firm, which was a profit-maximizing firm, which profit-maximized not in a point in time, but over the entire history of, of the universe. And with that combination... Uh, Ramsey worked out what he called, and literally called it a bliss point somewhere in the future, where the rate of growth of, of utility over time and the 
rate of growth of capital compared to labor over time stabilized. And to get to that point, it actually turned out the mathematics of that point is what's called a saddle. Okay, If you imagine a saddle in space and you're trying to throw a ball bearing onto the saddle and make it stay there, rather difficult. So what he presumed was that the central planner would work out where the saddle was in the future. Of course, if, if you actually could stand and, you know, let's say you're 80 years away from the bliss point, and then 80 years in time, you could throw a ball bearing and you were precisely at the head of the horse and it went precisely up and down the middle of the... It had finally settled into the... the but it wouldn't fall off the saddle. So he presumed a central planner could do that, but that actually required you to change people's consumption and, and savings today. And that is a pretty absurd concept, but that's what they then took as the basis of microeconomics. So what they said is, rather than having the central planner who does it, and Ramsey literally talked in terms of a benevolent central planner, uh, each individual uh, works out where the saddle is, and then if the saddle gets disturbed by a change in the preferences of the consumer or the cost functions of the firm, the saddle's location will move, and therefore that means you know, 80 years in the future it moves, you've got to move to a new, unstable a vector to be able to get onto that saddle. So what they call the trade cycle, they saw just rational adjustments to movements, what they call technology shocks and preference shocks, of where the saddle was in the far future. And they literally described the Great Depression as an extended holiday by the working class. There was something that reduced overall hours. Now, there's a paper, 1999. If you want to, if you want to see how absurd this stuff is, I think that's my favourite paper to recommend, by Nobel Prize winner Edward Prescott. And it's called Some Observations on the Great Depression. Search for it, you'll find it. He literally described the Great Depression as an extended holiday. As a non-economist, I have to stress, just sounds very bizarre to me. So, A, there's this assumption that in the Great Depression, the unemployment rates were basically voluntary in that sense. And that we are just effectively always self-adjusting to the new equilibrium. Mm. And that this is okay, even if it causes massive trauma in between. Well, there's no such thing as trauma. This, This is the real business cycle and everything is optimal. That is such an extreme position that some mainstream economists simply couldn't swallow that argument. So they said, look, that can't be true. And what, what are you doing that gets you to that position? You're assuming perfect markets, perfect foresight, all the usual nonsense that's in a, a mainstream economics textbook. But, okay, we've also got the stuff called imperfect competition. And if we assume there's an imperfect competition a competitive market somewhere, so you have, like the, let's say, let's say the uh, intermediate goods market is 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 uh, oligopoly, then there's going to be some pricing power, and because there's pricing power, when you get disturbed from it by a shock, you will have a period of slow adjustment back to the equilibrium again, and then with that concept, and uh, when they had models which had effectively seven major variables to them, so there's seven seven dimensions, uh, they would fit that that model to the data. There were three major equations, an equation for the central bank's interest rate setting controls. That's why they were so obsessed about controlling central banks. Uh, An equation for the utility maximizing behavior of the consumer and also a profit maximizing equation for the behavior of two two firms, one competitive, one non-competitive. And that was how they modeled the entire economy. Now, as I said, there are seven major variables. So if you have seven different uh, functions which you're describing as a stochastic process, meaning that there's some deterministic relationship where you know, y at t equals y at t minus 1 plus some shock, and you have seven of them, you can fit anything. And that's what they were doing, overfitting their models to the data. And what they saw happening at the same time was this great moderation. Now, their interpretation of the great moderation was, oh, fantastic. Well, now that we're in control, we're reducing unemployment, reducing uh, inflation, we're heading towards a long-term equilibrium point, and we know how the economy works. And then 2007 happened. 
I mean, that's what's amazing, because in the book, you talk about effectively how arrogant that entire community were uh, leading up to the crisis. Mm. The models were still saying, uh, oh, everything's going to be fine, mm. even though there has, by that point, we saw the stress in the financial system. But because the models were not incorporating the financial system into their forecasts, essentially, it was disregarded. And I think what's interesting for me is I was around back then, and I do remember very poignantly in many ways how insistent they were that even if there was a crash, it wasn't going to feed through to the real economy. So why did they get it wrong? And is it a case of trying to reverse engineer the data to fit your assumption? I mean, I, I describe them now as Ptolemaic economists because what they fundamentally have is a model uh, very much like Ptolemy's model of astronomy. The Earth is the centre of the universe. The stars, the, the, the sun and the moon and planets orbit around us on, I think they call them equants. There are epicycles to explain why the, why the planets occasionally change direction. And if you fiddle with all the various controls, I think there's about four different parameters you can fiddle within a Ptolemaic model. And everybody has a different Ptolemaic model, of course, back in those days. You can fit the actual observed behaviour of the planets and, of course, the stars perfectly for centuries. In, in fact, is one of my favourite illustrations of this. The idea of a circular motion on circular motion on circular motion is so flexible that if you wanted to have a planet that moved in the sky like Homer Simpson, you could actually draw Homer Simpson in space. So they're, they're precisely fitting these models to the data, but as with Ptolemy's model, they are completely wrong. I think what's interesting is how a lot of economists seem to ignore the narrative. You know, journalists try to make sense of the world by effectively joining bits of information together to form a narrative that makes some sort of sense. Whereas here we have, um, this is very controversial, and I, I respect economists for sure, but I do find it interesting how sometimes they can ignore the narrative of what's going on on the ground because they're so absolutely confident in the data. And for me, as someone who's always struggled with statistics, I always thought it very strange that you can derive um, such bold forecasts from a small sample of data that is effectively a sample, right? So it can't necessarily capture the entire universe. Am I right? It's not mainly the sample stuff. It's how, how they assume the data operates. What they assume is the economy is a stable system that always returns to equilibrium. Now, ironically, that Ramsey model I mentioned to you beforehand has an unstable equilibrium. So they actually simply roll over the top of the instability. They do what they call log-linearizing the model and force it into having stability properties it doesn't have and then describe anything as actually goes uh, and causes a, like a downturn in employment. They'll call that an exogenous shock. And, of course, in this particular case, they say, oh, dear, we had exogenous shocks for technology. We had exogenous shocks for preferences. We forgot to include exogenous shocks from the financial sector. Now, I hope most of your listeners will be saying, you mean you believe the financial sector is exogenous to the economy? Well, they do. And so what they've done now to modify the model, and there's a recent paper just actually came out last week, which is supposed to be a survey of DSG models. And the opening sentence that the model says, people who criticize DSG models are dilettantes. So they're back to the arrogance again. They simply don't think there's any other way you can model the economy apart from using this technology. But that shows how ignorant they are of other fields because if you ask an engineer how he models a vehicle or models a nuclear power plant, they have other modelling techniques, thanks very much, which have been around for about 50 or 60 years. That technology, some of it, can be applied to economics. And when you do it, that's what I've actually done. So I, uh, rather than trying to build the economy from the micro scale up, I start from undeniable macroeconomic definitions. And I then, following uh, what's called complex systems theory, uh, one of the insights of complex systems theory is that if you have a, 
a system where there's nonlinear interactions between variables, then getting the structure of the economy right in that sense, the nonlinear interactions between, say, employment and wages share and the debt level and employment and so on, that's more important than the actual form of the behaviour. So they spend a lot of time getting precise little you know, tweaks to get the behaviour right using their, their their model so it fits the data. I simply say, if I use a linear assumption about wage setting and a linear assumption about investment, I generate both the Great Moderation and the Great Recession in a, in a model that has three variables and nine parameters. Now, they they come up with models with seven seven variables and about 60 parameters. And I'm afraid both parsimony and prediction are in my favour, not theirs. So now's probably a good time to get your perspective on Minsky because um, he's a great influence on your work, as was Keynes as well. And I'm just wondering in terms of where we are now, what would Minsky be saying with respect to what's happening? He'd be tearing his hair out watching them deny reality still. I only met Minsky once. And we corresponded only once, but of course Randall Ray was his PhD student, and Randall says that um, you know, Minsky would shut the door to his lectures so the other staff couldn't hear what he was saying. We're talking back in the 1950s and 1960s. We're really talking McCarthyist attitudes towards anybody who is non-orthodox. The question that Minsky set himself, which which is this, it just shows how a simple, different question can give you a very, very different perspective on capitalism. The neoclassical question is: Can a set of dis- disaggregated markets reach general equilibrium? That's, that's their defining question. But uh, what Minsky asked himself is, can another Great Depression occur? He was writing in 1982 when he wrote this wonderful, can it happen again? And he said, if it, can it happen? And if it hasn't happened, why hasn't it happened since 1945? And then to me, that was the most positive analysis of capitalism that I'd seen. I'd seen plenty of critical analyses, you know, Marx is talking about a declining rate of profit and all this sort of stuff, which I knew was nonsense. But Minsky summarised and said the fundamental instability of a capitalist economy is upward. The tendency to turn doing well into a speculative boom is the fundamental weakness of a capitalist economy. And that focuses upon leverage, on financial speculation, and it ties the finance sector right into the economy. If you're modelling the economy without a finance sector, you're not modelling the economy. So Minsky... Uh, the verbal stuff he did was brilliant. His attempt at a mathematical model used a model that I knew was math- wasn't mathematically false, it was economically false. This is what they call the hicks hansen samuelson multiplier accelerator model, which is actually a fallacy. So he tried to build a model on that and got nowhere and finally gave up the mathematics, generally speaking. I knew of complex systems and nonlinear differential equations and stuff like that. So I thought, well, if I, I can probably build a model that gives this result that Minsky had. And I finally realized, I, I wrote it by, by saying I'll, I'll take another person's model, a guy called Goodwin, and then add a financial sector to it, which Goodwin was opposed to me doing. But when I did that, I saw this great moderation, great recession phenomenon occurring. And I've since realized that it is actually derivable from macroeconomic definitions. So one reason the mainstream rejects anybody else is say, well, you can't, you can't derive it from micro. I said, what about deriving it from macro? What about using definitions you agree with? And I'll show you what happens when I build a model that way. Can you get this? The answer is no. So this complex systems approach is the approach we should be using for modeling, and they're still resisting that. They don't even understand it. With respect to where we are now, you've created a model. It seems to make much better sense of what's going on than, say, some of the others. But um, with respect to reception of your model and your ideas, why is it that the economic community is so polarised? Because I think people forget that, you know, when economists go to do interviews on the BBC or whatever, the average kind of person just sees them as an economist. They don't really understand that they're from this school or that school. They think of it as a kind of universal science, that there isn't much dispute. But 
what I've learned over time is that actually, whereas they maybe agree on 90% of the stuff of the hardcore mathematics, the 10%, the difference uh, in the views comes from a lot of political ideology. Is that fair? If you imagine having a conversation between a Ptolemaic astronomer and Copernicus, how would the conversation go? If a meteor smashed into the Earth, how would a Ptolemaic economist explain that? Now, the only explanation they've got it would be an atmospheric phenomena because the heavens are perfect. Okay, and they'd be trying to explain how this atmospheric phenomena occurred, or they'd be completely ignoring it. And Galileo would be saying, or Copernicus would be saying, it's a it's this rock in space that happened to intersect with the path of the Earth, uh, when as we're all orbiting around the around the sun, and finally start working out the mathematics of, of Newton's you know, inverse square law and so on. That's the gap between the two perspectives, and. The trouble is that when you look at how economics evolved over time, I actually take it right back to the physiocrats. But from Adam Smith on, you had the labor theory of value and the argument that the labor produced output, which Marx turned into a critique of capitalism. And when he did that, largely in the 1870s, 1860s, 1870s, the fact that this way of analysis that Ricardo and Smith had used to support capitalism was now being turned against it gave impetus to people who used the a utility maximizing framework. People were influenced by Jean Baptiste Say and, and uh, Augusto Corno. And that's when you develop this mathematical model of well raising general equilibrium. And what that actually is seeing is seeing the market system as a perfect system. They really believe that if they can change the real world so it fits their models more accurately, we'll get a better world. In that sense, they're more zealots than they are intellectuals. Obviously, there are Marxists at the other stream who are trying to overthrow capitalism. Good luck with that. But there is in the middle is sort of this realistic group of evolutionary economists uh, in some, some ways, post-Keynesian economists, and people are saying that what you call Keynes is not Keynes, is actually Paul Samuelson. And, and we've been saying, let's get a realistic model of capitalism. We don't care whether it's the best social system or not. We simply want to be able to describe it accurately. And so that alternative group is about one-sixth of the profession, uh, but they're completely ignored by the mainstream. So basically what you're saying, as I understand it, is there's a bunch of economists out there trying to sort of squeeze a, a square peg into a round hole. What's, what's the rationale for not including the financial sector? They say that money is a veil over barter. So they fundamentally treat capitalism as a barter system. And they go through this little indoctrination ceremony in, in first year where they give you a utility-maximizing individual facing a budget constraint. And they say, what happens if we double all prices and double incomes? No change, sir. Therefore, uh, absolute prices don't matter. It's just relative prices. You ignore relative prices, which means you ignore how money's created. And they have a, a fictional model of money creation called the money multiplier and also called fractional reserve banking. And one of the great pleasures that I have of the post-crisis period is that that's okay if you're working in an academic department where you're just trying to indoctrinate students without even you think you're educating you're actually indoctrinating them but central banks can't afford that and the bank of england in particular has come out and said your money model is wrong a wonderful paper called money creation in the modern economy from 2014 and equally as recently the bundesbank has come out with the same argument and of all things the bundesbank so the non-orthodox crowd that I'm part of are now getting the ear of central banks. And in this front, I, I think there's simply no chance for the university sector to reform itself and allow a realistic complex systems monetary analysis of capitalism to evolve at universities. They'll continue defending the faith. So the real change is coming from institutions like the Bank of England, the OECD, even the IMF, the World Bank, you've got some potential there because they actually have to give serious policy advice. And every now and then they find themselves locking around with a politician. 
And if you're locked in a room with a politician who's just been, you know, castigated by journalists for all the stupid mistakes he made about the economic forecast, uh, then he goes back and he delivers 10 times as much to The Economist. And you find this level of humility about their failure to model in central banks that does not exist in academic economic departments. So based on all that, what's your model saying about where we are now? We're obviously entering a rates hiking era again, perhaps. Um, Are we to be worried? Is the amount of leverage in the system too much in terms of being able to tolerate those rate hikes? Are we likely to see a destabilization? Because certainly when you listen to what the policymakers are saying, they seem fairly confident. Yeah, well, they're wrong. Uh, not the, the policymakers themselves rather than the policy analysts who are advising them, by the way. I've got a feeling quite a few people in the Bank of England are horrified by what's being suggested by the Monetary Policy Committee. But their model tells them that uh, you can control inflation by putting up interest rates. And the model also tells them that you don't need to worry about the level of private debt and you don't need to worry about credit. Now, my approach ends up saying the level of private debt and credit, which is the change in private debt, are by far the most important economic indicators. So if you were trying to put up interest rates now from where they are, you know, we're getting close to 1%, to what they see is the equilibrium level, which is 4%. Given that the UK is carrying now a debt level of 175% of GDP, that's the private debt level, and it peaked at 195% of GDP shortly after the financial crisis, then that extra 3% servicing cost on that debt will devastate people who've got debt to service. And their response will be to try to cut back on their spending so GDP falls and also to try to pay their debt down. So the monetary supply falls because when you pay down debt, you actually destroy money. Your deposit account goes down, the debt goes down as well. So this is what Japan's been doing now for 25 years. Same basic system. They, They see a bit of a recovery in the economy. It's actually driven by a recovery in credit. So at the moment, credit, which is the annual change in private debt, is running at about 8 or 9% of Britain's GDP right now. That's why there's been no crisis after Brexit, because credit demands far more important than international trade on that front is far more volatile. So with that much extra demand coming into the economy from credit, the economy is recovering a bit. And also, of course, QE's had that major impact as well. Very expensive way to get a major impact, but it has had an impact. Now, if they decide to try to unwind QE and put up interest rates in the belief of return to equilibrium again, they're stepping out of their model into the real world once more and the real world will bite them. I don't see the UK as having a, another crisis because to have a crisis, you've got to have a rising level of private debt and a high level of private debt at the same time. We have the high level, but credit demand now is much lower than it was before the crisis. And when, you, when you're that close to the maximum the UK has ever carried, you know, only about you know, 20% below the maximum, the room for acceleration is pretty minor. So I can see it going up and down, up and down, and they'll continue thinking the worst is over, putting rates up, the economy crunches, they put them down, they turn QE off, asset prices fall, they turn QE back on again. That's what I expect to see. In that case, what worries you? UK society is nowhere near as cohesive as Japanese society. And that's Japan's been doing the same thing uh, for 25 years. It's, it's finally getting a credit-based recovery again itself, and people think the worst is over yet again. Same sort of story. But with the UK, this is why I see the Brexit voters having occurred. And, and I voted for Brexit, of course. I called myself a Groucho Marxist. I was in a club I didn't want to belong to, which is the European Union. I think their economic policy is insane. But... In terms of people voting for Brexit, a large part of it was because they were told that this neoliberal policies of deregulation, crushing unions, etc., etc., would be like castor oil. Tastes bad for you now, but good for you in the long run. They've had 30 years of it since Maggie Thatcher came to power. And their attitude is, well, it's been taste bad and it's lousy for us, and we don't want any more. And that political breakdown is why you're seeing Trump, 
why you saw Jeremy Corbyn, why you had Le Pen getting so close, why there's chaos inside the German political system right now, why the Italians may well build a parallel payment system. So this chaos, and it's not the sort of positive chaos I work with, real you know, political breakdown chaos, that's a direct product of economic theory. Let's talk about Brexit because obviously you're an un- unorthodox economist, but in certain quarters voting for Brexit is deemed like highly irrational. Um, you know, the economic case is supposedly so strong as to why we need to remain. And I believe even... Um, your friend, Yanis Varoufakis, has made the argument It's quite prominently that it's better to have a seat at the table. I'm really interested to know what your economist head says about this all because we don't get to hear the other side that often. Well, the basic reason, as opposed to the European Union, goes right back to the formation of the euro back in 1992 with the Maastricht Treaty. And Wynne Godley has a paper that he wrote in the London Review of Books called Maastricht and all that in 1992 and said that because they've got this ceiling on government debt and a ceiling on government deficits as well, when a crisis occurs, countries that need a stimulus will be forced to go into austerity and therefore the outcome will be terminal decline leading to starvation or emigration as the only alternatives. Now, that's exactly what we've seen. That's where a large part of the migration waves are coming from. It is just an insanely bad concept of economics. It comes actually not from as much from neoclassical thought as what's called auto-liberal thought, which is a particular German variant, sort of half Austrian economics, half half neoclassical, and with a typical German emphasis upon rules and doing what rules say. So I just don't think there's any chance to reform that institution. I think that's why they treated Greece. We see how they're treating UK negotiators right now. who are doing a stupid job, by the way. I would never defend the UK they need somebody with, I won't use the expression, but they don't have somebody who has the guts to take on the European Union. So they're playing them because, as Yanis himself said, the European Union doesn't want Brexit to succeed. They want to make it difficult. They want to make it, again, as they made Greece an example to the rest of the countries, don't leave the European Union. This will happen to you if you try to leave. Uh, they, they can't quite bash the UK as much because you have the pound. You produce your own, your own money. But it's the same basic philosophy. They want to make it uh, punish anybody for leaving the European Union. Now, if the European Union worked, nobody would want to leave. But the fact that so many people are wanting to leave, so many people, I mean, you get the, the separatist movements in wealthy parts of the, of the European Union as well, like Barcelona, you know, the, the Catalans, like, like you've got in northern, northern Italy. It's been a disaster for Europe over time. You know, the, the worst unemployment rate that America got was about 11%. If you actually look at it, it was actually about, using previous definition, it was about 13 or 14%. But still, it's nothing like Great Depression levels of 26%. Greece and Spain both had 26% unemployment rates. And you can criticise Greece and say, oh, terrible, you know, terrible management, etc., etc. Spain did everything right according to the Maastricht Treaty. It reduced government debt from 60% of GDP to 40 Even the Germans didn't manage to do that. It was running government surpluses. Why was it doing that? Because there was a private debt bubble which went from, I think, private debt being 100% of GDP to 240%, financing a huge housing bubble, and all the revenue out of that meant the government could actually run a surplus because the private sector was running such huge deficits. Now, Wynne Godley's point from his own analysis, why he could predict a crisis as well, uh, was to say that this trend can't continue, and when it stops, there's going to have to be a serious recession or massive government spending. Of course, we got both. So... One thing I wanted to ask you about is your views on China, because a few, I think maybe a year or so ago, you you made some bold predictions about their debt load. And arguably, China keeps defying expectations on that front. People have been predicting China's collapse uh, from too much leverage 
for ages. It just never happens. Why do you think that is? And, and are you still sticking to your analysis from back then? They have to have a credit crunch because they've had the highest rate of growth of credit in the history of, of capitalism on their recorded data. In 2009, they had a private debt level of about 100% of GDP. Uh, five or six years later, it was 220% of GDP. That's far faster than the rate of growth of, of debt during the bubble economy period in Japan, far faster than the subprime crisis for America. So when you've got that huge rate of growth of credit, it can't keep on going forever. People are going to be going bankrupt, unable to take it out. Banks will stop lending, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that dynamic is still built into the Chinese system. However, in a strange sort of way, they also confirm the sectoral balance approach that I'm also part of, which says that uh, if the government runs a deficit, that becomes a surplus for the private sector. Now, Western economies govern people like Hammond who are obsessed with running a government surplus. If you run a government surplus, because all surpluses sum to zero, running a surplus for the government sector means the private sector has a deficit, which you can feed by either GDP falls or they borrow money from private banks and you get a private debt bubble. That is insane. Now, the Chinese, on the other hand, they are quite willing to go from private-created money to government-created money. And you see things like the Silk Road project, the huge infrastructure building they're doing and so on. That's generating a flow of money and a flow of uh, industrialization in China that you wouldn't get in the West because of this ideology, mad ideology based on the idea of sound money. To the Chinese, sound money means financing development. And so I think that they will have a credit crunch, but they will then switch across to a a massively government-funded expansion of the economy, and they will therefore write off a lot of that private debt as well. So there will be bankruptcies, there will be failures, but uh, there are more potential to, to overcome the crisis than anybody else. The countries that can't do that are ones that swallow the Western, Western blue pill, and that includes uh, South Korea, Canada, Australia, Belgium, Sweden, Norway, uh, a few others. But if we see more and more pressure on China to liberalise a lot of their markets, mm. will they lose that ability? Yeah, to- they could. They could. And I think the capacity for the Chinese to simply ignore Western advice and do their own thing uh, is far greater than, uh, than we see in, in the West or see in Russia. You are not just an economist. You understand tech in the sense that you've got your own Minsky model. You you have uh, coding understanding. I was just wondering, Larry Summers has been and a lot of other economists are, are sort of pushing this idea of secular stagnation, its connection potentially to technology. And essentially, I'm just wondering if you could apply your tech brain to the secular stagnation theory, which I understand you're not a th- fan of. Why? And what's the main problem with it? So applying my tech brain to that, I'll put my history of economic thought brain to it as well. The first person to suggest secular stagnation as an explanation for ongoing depressions was Alvin Hansen writing back in the uh, 1930s to explain the Great Depression. He first spouted that view in 1934, and then uh, what was actually happening from 33 on was unemployment fell in the Amer- America from 26% of the population to about 11%. And they all thought it was all over, you know, thank God it's gone past us, we've survived that shock. And then they persuaded Roosevelt to start cutting government spending, again to try to balance the budget. That re-triggered private sector deleveraging, and unemployment rose from 11% to 20 now, at that point, Alvin Hansen came out with the secular stagnation hypothesis again and expected the future to be an indefinite period of, of stagnant growth because of a lower level of population growth and a lower level of technical change. That was before we invented the jet, before we invented nuclear power. Okay. All these things that, that economists suddenly pretend believe that, that we can't develop new technology. It's, it's basically saying you don't blame the economy for growing slowly. It must be the fault of the engineers or the, or the parents not having enough babies. So I see it as quite vacuous. 
And in what is actually going on is not secular stagnation, it's credit stagnation. Because this is part of my, my empirical argument. Total demand in the economy is the sum of the turnover of existing money, so money stock times velocity of circulation, plus new debt. Because that new debt creates new money and people spend that money into existence. So that's part of aggregate demand. And you've gone from a period uh, where credit demand was, you know, the order of say 5 or 6% of GDP back in the 1950s. And where debt was 33% of GDP to America, where that debt peaked out at 170% of GDP, and the crisis started when credit was 15% of GDP. The annual change in debt was equivalent to 15% of GDP in 2008. Then you had a plunge in credit from 15% to minus 6 and that's what caused the Great Recession. Now, in the aftermath of that, you have an unwillingness to borrow money for obvious reasons, but you also have such a level of private debt that even that's going to stop people having a sustained level of borrowing. It seems to, in America's case, about 170 180% is the maximum level of private debt they can cope with before they have a crunch. Countries like Denmark got to 280%, but that's the absolute global record. So in the aftermath to a debt bubble like that, what you have is slow growth of credit or negative credit, and that's what gives you low level of not just a change in demand. In Japan's case, it's also been a low level of investment because the corporations, Japanese corporations, mainly finance their investment by borrowing from related banks in the, what's called the Kairetsu system. And because the, most of the debt in Japan was corporate debt, in the aftermath of the end of the bubble economy back in 1990, they're no longer borrowing from the Kairetsus, even though they were you know, sort of semi, semi-related banks. And you definitely don't have much investment. So Japanese investment's fallen off a cliff compared to the days when Sony was going to take over the sound industry and Toyota was going to take over the car industry. So that secular stagnation is just the wrong explanation for the phenomenon. It's all the way through. It's credit. And what economists have done, they convince themselves they can model capitalism without including banks' debt or money. And when they bring them in, they treat them as frictions rather than driving forces in the system. They'll never understand it. So in that sense, that's why I think we've got to bring about a whole new approach to economics so quickly, though, in terms of um, the robots, that's what we hear about yeah. all the time now. The next great industrial revolution, we're going to have massive unemployment. There's going to be a lot of social change, a lot of social upset because of this. Where do you stand on that? Well, actually, I agree with that because I think what we're going through is a, nothing like this has ever happened before in the sense that we now have the capacity to replace virtually all forms of labor with machine inputs or with algorithms. And a large part of why you had full employment as in, in the early post-war period is that there was a huge expansion of the bureaucracy, both corporate bureaucracy and government bureaucracies, which employed lots of people not producing anything. Okay? The production people are people on factory lines, people in, in, in the fields. The proportion of people actually producing output declined dramatically. The expansion was in the bureaucracy. And now what we've got is the capacity to replace that bureaucracy with AI and a lot of the actual manufacturing work to replace with robotics. I've just recently seen it. It's stunning to see it actually happening. Uh, You can now buy a robotic chef, which literally will cook a meal for you with two hands, which are actually, there's been virtual reality to to look at how real top-class chefs cut, including all the flourishes. You can buy it now. So in that sense, people say, well, people can change from one activity to another. Virtually everything you might want to have done can be done by a machine. It's only the stuff you specifically want from a human which are going to be potential employment for people in the future. And that could be something as low as 10% of the population. Now, in that situation, that's why I'm a supporter of universal basic income, because you, you generate the income for us to consume what capitalism can produce. That actually gives a cash flow to capitalists as well. It, it enables people to get out there and innovate and make a profit. But if you don't do it, I think the, the potential we face is the world of the Hunger Games. 
Yeah, and, but it, and it confuses me a little bit because I wonder, you know, if, if we're supposed to be benefiting from all this technology, because at the end of the day, my view is that technology is supposed to serve us, not us serving technology. I get confused when when you see the rise of the gig economy and effectively a resurgence of sort of hipster, artisanal, very small scale industry. You know, if you think about artisanal brewers or coffee makers, that's hardly productive labor. So to what degree does that square with the productivity puzzle that we're seeing, especially here in the UK? Well, it's a large part of it. And also low investment's a large part of it. I mean, what productivity really is, is dividing output by the number of workers you've got. It's not workers becoming more productive. It's whether your machinery, which workers manage, is producing more physical output per unit of time. Now, if you're not investing which is one of the UK's problems in its manufacturing sector, you're not going to see productivity rising. We have these farcical ideas that you've got productivity out of the financial sector and, you know, for that matter, out of you know, a whole lot of other, other services in, in the financial sector. That's not productivity. That's simply dividing how much you charge as debt creation by the number of people working in the industry. So our measures of productivity are quite false. I've actually developed what's called, what I'm calling an energy-aware theory of production because mainstream economics and non-orthodox economics had no role for energy in their modelling. I've finally worked out how to bring in energy in an explicit and undeniable sense into production models. And what we're going through right now is a dramatic capacity increase in the capacity of machines to take over the minor number of energy inputs we've got left where people basically, human labour controls the machines. If you can get machines to control the machines, you don't need the human labour anymore. And you actually get a higher level of productivity out of the machine than you get out of the person in terms of units of real output. Now, what's going to stop you on that front is you won't have anybody to sell the goods to. So in that sense, I think a universal basic income at a substantial level, a level that gives people a comfortable life, would be a necessary component to have a broad-based society and economy in the future. And if we don't do it, then the alternative is where a tiny handful get everything and the rest of them are entertained with killing each other. That's you know the old Hunger Games analogy. So I think we have to make that move because the technological shift is enormous, particularly when you're seeing people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bozos and then NASA as well, working quite deliberately with the intention of taking production off planet. I know that's a long, long way away, but it might be 50 years. Well, there aren't going to be many workers in outer space. There'll be a lot of robots. So production as a source for employment for workers and therefore income for workers, I think it stays are over. So, and just before I get to the last question, which is obviously going to be, can we avoid another financial crisis? Because <laughs> you mentioned Max Kaiser and uh, RT in general are quite enthusiastic about the cryptocurrency development in, mm. in the world. I was just wondering what your view on all of that is in terms of the economy, but also in terms of financial instability. Yeah, I, I spoke at a cryptocurrency conference yesterday in, in Birmingham and as a skeptic because uh, looking at, at how... Bitcoin has been designed, which is the major cryptocurrency. It's designed in an analogy to gold, as if gold should be money. And it's never been money. It's a false analogy. And the, the energy costs are absolutely enormous right now. And you've had an eightfold increase in the price so far this calendar year. And people are saying, oh, it's going to take over. It's going to go to 100,000. Max keeps on making claims like that. If it keeps on going up like that, you'd be a fool to use it to go shopping. Because if you bought a house uh, a year ago with Bitcoin, then now you could buy four houses. So why shop? There's a very, very strong anti-consumption element built into a massively appreciating currency. But if you then have it being used just for transactions and you have the energy cost fall as well, what is the price? So I think we're in a massive bubble on that particular form of digital money. But the overall idea of a a digital money system backed by blockchain and so on could work just as well as the central bank doing it. The Bank of England is looking at that right now, producing digital accounts for everybody at the Bank of England. 
So I think there are some positive developments out of the whole field, but I, I think they've started off with a bit of an Austrian fanboy approach to how money is, is functions, and, and that's dysfunctional, so it's leading to it not actually being a form of money. And, and what about also um, in tandem, there's, there's this sort of proliferation of currencies as well. So mm. there's this kind of money printing side of it. So it's not just about Bitcoin. There's like over the last count, there's like thousands and thousands mm. of these currencies and, yeah. and these new things called ICOs, which are being used as a, like a, a funding mechanism mm. in its own right. Is that a source of potential instability? Oh, absolutely, because people are buying into that. We're in the belief the price is going to continue rising. It's a positive feedback loop that always breaks down. So you, for a while you'll have people saying, oh, I've got to buy now because it'll be more expensive tomorrow. And you demand, not because it's you know supply and demand type analysis, it's actually capital appreciation argument. But at some point it gets to be so expensive to get into the market and a lot of people who are going to buy in have already bought in, uh, then you stop seeing that inflow of people coming in and buying and the demand evaporates. And that's what happened with the tulip crisis. It's what's happened with the South Sea bubble. So I think in that sense, the price levels right now are, are a bubble. But also the technology is very much at a nascent period. So it's quite possible somebody could design a socially responsible, uh, intelligently thought out alternative to fiat money and credit money using cryptocurrencies. And I met a few people who would specifically have that a- ambition in mind at this conference in Birmingham on the weekend. So I see some potential there, but it's still, it's wild west stage stuff right now. Which brings us back to the killer question, can we avoid another financial crisis? Because based on everything we've been talking about, my assumption is no, but what what are you thinking? Well, I actually have a qualified answer depending on which country you're talking about because countries that had a private debt bubble that burst back in 2007, 2008, like the UK, America, Ireland, Spain, etc., etc., they are unlikely to go back into another bubble, though I've got an exception there with Ireland, which has got itself back in another housing bubble five years after the last one crashed. I can't believe that. So those countries I call the, the walking debt of debt. They've got too much private debt. They've done nothing to reduce it. In fact, they've tried to encourage people to get back into borrowing money again. We should be writing the debt off, and there are creative ways to do that, but uh, we're not doing it. So that level of debt is like having a ball and chain around your ankles. You might get a bit of momentum up, and then you'll get slowed down once more. So they're what I call the walking debt. Other countries got through the crisis by continuing to borrow private money. So China was obviously the most outrageous example of that. But Canada, Australia, South Korea, um, Belgium, to some extent Singapore, uh, those countries all got through by dramatic expansion of credit. Now, they're going to face the same basic crunch. So I call them the zombies to be. And there's between 9 and 16, depending upon the various parameters I look at. China, obviously, the biggest. China also has that public spending which you can go across to, so it won't necessarily be as big a negative shock as the others. But if you have like a decline in, in GDP and a collapse in the stock market in South Korea and Canada and Australia and Belgium and Norway and Sweden and a few others, then in that aftermath, the aggregate demand for the whole economy, global economy goes down, and even those that are walking dead of debt will get a bit of a a slap in the face from it. But I think that the crisis is going to occur in countries that managed to borrow their way through the last one. That's been an amazing sort of overview of, of where we are today, I think. I'm going to leave the floor open to you. What What is not being talked about that we should be talking about? Oh, well, the main thing is understanding the monetary system. And uh, that's where the non-orthodox crowd, I'm, myself at one uh, element, I'm, I'm a, the complex systems modeling of money, what's called modern monetary theory as well, which points out the government should not run de- uh, surpluses, they should run deficits because government money creation is part of what we have as, as money creation in a mixed fiat credit system. Uh, so we're slowly building an alternative approach to economics and we need to be supported because we will not be supported by the university sector. Um, people who 
um, who do this work will only get a job at low-ranking universities, which are very vulnerable to some change in government policy, which, of course, is what's happened to my program at Kingston. So um, you have to support the rebels because, in that sense, the rebels are the Copernicuses of our time. And unless we get a Copernican vision of economics rather than a child make one, we'll continue bumping into meteors we don't even know are there. As a Paul uh, who kind of claims Copernicus for a, for our nation, I have to agree <laughs> with that. <laughs> no, thank you so much, Steve. That's been a really insightful conversation. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It was good fun. And that's the end of Izzy's chat with Steve Keen. Give us a call at 917-551-5012. That's plus one country code because we are in the US. You can email us at alphachat at ft.com. And please, please leave a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Not only does it help us make the show better, it also helps new listeners find out about us. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you here next week for a brand new episode of Alpha Chat. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.